Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 1, 50 Berkeley Square This episode is about the weird happenings at 50 Berkeley Square, London. In the late 18th century, a young woman lived with her uncle at the townhouse located at 50 Berkeley Square in London. Her uncle was a cruel and abusive man, and it was well known that he was doing her harm, though the specific nature of that harm was never specified. One night, she opened the window of her top floor room and flung herself out, falling to her death. Since then, her spirit has been seen in the upstairs of the house. Some say that simply seeing her has the power to frighten a person to death. In some tellings of the Berkeley townhouse hauntings, the specter that haunts the top floor is that of a young man who was kept locked in a room and fed through a hole in the door. In other tellings, it's the spirit of a little girl. In other versions, the ghost can be any of the three, or something else entirely, like the form of a vaguely horrific human-shaped mist. The mist is one of the things that really captured my imagination, as one source indicated that it was large but humanoid-shaped, with dark holes through the mist where the eyes and the mouth should be. At some point, the townhouse was the home of George Canning, the British Prime Minister, who lived there until his death in 1827. Stories differ as to whether or not he was the abusive uncle, but that seems unlikely. Canning, it is alleged, heard strange sounds in the night from empty parts of the house, but never reported feeling especially frightened. After Canning's death, the townhouse was leased to one Miss Curzon, who lived there until she died at the ripe age of 90 in the 1850s. In 1840, a young man named Robert Warboyce, who I assume was on his day off from defending the Citadel on behalf of a Morton Joe, was drinking with friends at a nearby tavern, and he heard that the house at 50 Berkeley Square was haunted. Filled with alcohol and testosterone, he accepted a dare to stay the night in the house. Arriving at the door, he made enough noise to wake the landlord, who's never been named in any of the accounts I read, but I presume was living on the premises at the same time as Miss Curzon and the landlord naturally rebuffed him. Warboys then proceeded to make such a nuisance of himself that the landlord agreed to let him stay in one of the more haunted rooms on two conditions. Condition one, Warboys be armed. Whether the pistol he took with him was his own or was borrowed from the landlord is unclear. And condition two, at the first sign of trouble, Warboys was to pull a cord in the room that would ring a bell and summon the landlord. Warboys was left alone in the room, after an hour, the bell began to ring frantically, and the landlord heard a pistol shot. Arriving in the room, the landlord found Warboys cowering in a corner, smoke rising from the barrel of his pistol, a bullet embedded in a nearby wall, but everything else in the room was unchanged from when the young man had entered. Warboys was clearly agitated, but said nothing and fled the house. In some versions of the story, Warboys is said to be dead or catatonic when the landlord arrived. In 1859, Thomas Myers moved into the townhouse, and he would eventually bring the dankness that every good haunted house story requires, as well as a heaping helping of weird. Initially, things looked bright for Myers. He was engaged to be married, and after moving in, he began furnishing the townhouse for his future family. But when his fiancée jilted him, he became a recluse. 
He kept to himself on the top floor, going days at a time without speaking to anyone. He left his room only at night to wander the house by candlelight, engaging in the sort of creepy eccentricity that only the very wealthy have ever been permitted. He allowed the house to fall into disrepair, neither cleaning it nor carrying out necessary maintenance. He died in 1874, allegedly quite mad, though some stories put his death in the 1880s. During Mr. Meyer's time in the house, one incident of particular notoriety occurred. In 1872, George Littleton, a prominent politician and member of the aristocracy, arranged for a room at the house for one night. He brought a firearm, possibly a shotgun, with him. Late that night, he fired at something. When he went to look for it the next morning, he found his cartridges, but no sign of whatever it was he had shot at. Littleton said that he had shot at a strange brown-colored creature with tendrils in place of arms or legs. Whether the creature had appeared in front of him or he had seen it enter the room varies from telling to telling. But allegedly, this horrifying ordeal led Littleton to declare that the house was supernaturally fatal to body and mind. An article published in Mayfair Magazine in 1879 reported that a maid, working in the attic in the service of the family who had recently bought the house, broke into a sudden, terrified scream. The new owners rushed to her aid and found her weeping on the floor and murmuring, Don't let it touch me. Allegedly, that was the last comprehensible thing she ever said. She died the next day in an asylum. The room she had been preparing was for Captain Kent, the fiancé of the family's daughter. Despite the fate of the maid, Kent chose to stay in the room anyway, perhaps as a show of bravery, or maybe a show of foolishness. He went to bed, and thirty minutes later, his fiancé's family heard him screaming, followed by the sound of a gunshot. When they reached his room, he was catatonic and died shortly thereafter. Incidentally, the number of guns in the stories makes me wonder if the London setting is a mistake and the entire story really took place in Texas. A final story tells that in 1887, two sailors looking for lodging decided to break into the now-deserted house to save money. According to some versions of the story, they weren't thrifty as much as thrill-seeking. The men bedded down somewhere on the upper floors, and after hearing a series of strange sounds, somehow managed to fall asleep nonetheless. One of the sailors woke in the night to see his companion struggling with something strange. It was an amorphous, blob-like creature with tentacles and it was strangling his companion. In some tellings, the free sailor tried to help his friend and attack the thing. In others, he simply took off running in fear. Regardless of the specifics, the sailor who was attacked by the creature died. An examination of the body found circular wounds similar to suction cups on his neck and torso. There is, however, another version of the story, which does not discuss the creature. In this version, one of the sailors woke up and saw the ghost of Mr. Meyer, who approached threateningly. The frightened man woke the other sailor, and they both fled. The sailor who had seen the ghost tripped as he ran from the house and died from an injury sustained during the fall. Some versions say that he tripped near a window, fell out, and was impaled on the metal fence that surrounded the house. And one final version of that story has it all occurring in 1943, at the height of the Second World War. In this version, the sailors broke into the basement in order to obtain free lodging for the night. They found the basement dank and rat-infested. So they moved to the attic room, where they started a fire in the fireplace, settled in for the night, and fell asleep. They were awoken by the sound of a door opening, followed by a wet, scraping sound. The sailors saw and felt tendrils of some strange creature touching them, and then those appendages wrapped around the neck of one of the sailors as he was reaching for his gun. The other sailor, terrified, fled and found a police officer who he begged for help. 
When they returned to the house, they found no sign of the other sailor in the attic room. Eventually, in the basement, they discovered his dismembered corpse with his head horribly twisted, clearly indicating a broken neck and a look of terror frozen on his face. Stories about the house from the 1870s onward, and increasingly during the 20th century, report something strange in or around the house described variously as a shadowy man, a slimy amorphous bag of goop with tentacles, a collection of writhing shadows, and more standard human-like apparitions. The house was bought by an antiquarian bookseller in the 1930s, and it continued as the home to that business until 2015. The current owners say that nothing unusual has ever occurred, and note that they can demonstrate the flaws in each of the various stories, and how these stories fail to comply with the documented history of the building. Many people point to the management, or sometimes the police, as having, at least at some time, closed off the upper floors, where the supernatural horrors are said to be the most severe, as evidence that there is something wrong and horrifying happening, and that the authorities, or perhaps the owners, are covering it up. The owners, in response, have shown evidence that the building was damaged during the London Blitz, and indicate that as the reason for the upper floors having been closed off for a time. Commentary. My mother was a fan of In Search Of and many of the various other paranormal and New Age books and, in scare quotes, documentaries that peaked in popularity in the late 70s and early 80s. She would often give my sisters and I books filled with ghost stories, and the story was included in one of them. We lost the book eventually, but as a teenager and later as an adult, I tried to find the story again. I couldn't remember that the story was set in London, and so every time I would try to look up ghost stories for England, I would find things like the Borley Rectory, the Brown Lady photo, and a handful of others. None of them had the mist-like ghost that haunted my childhood imagination, or sailors being attacked by some strange tentacled beast, and so I always thought that I would never track the story down. Until one day when I happened to come across a YouTube video from the channel Bedtime Stories titled The Unnamed Horror of Berkeley Square. I didn't know that it would be this story, but something about the title tickled my memory, so I watched it. And it was, in fact, the story that I'd spent so many years trying to track down. And now that I knew it was in Berkeley Square, finding additional information has been remarkably easy. I'm very happy to have found the story again. It was a formative one for me, and it fed my early interest in ghost folklore. I'd likely have retained an interest in ghost stories regardless. The entertainment and creep factor alone is enough to pull me in. But this story really grabbed me at a young age. Where so many stories were over the top to a ridiculous extent, or were rather cookie-cutter and boring, this one was weird and disturbing in a really rare way. Most of my interest in ghost stories ever since has been caught up in a search for that not-quite-right feeling that was provided by reading about the house on Berkeley Square. That said, one of the things that surprised me as I became reacquainted with the story is how many retellings that I found that focused on the strange tentacled creature, and in their analysis often imply or even flatly state that it's an octopus, when I remember the focus being on the ghosts in the uh, book from my childhood. In my memory, the creature was presented more as a ghostly manifestation than a physical entity. 
in looking at the articles and videos on the subject, I was interested in honestly a little disappointed to find that most of the focus is on a discussion of whether the weird creature is some kind of unknown animal, often suggested to be a mutant octopus that is adapted to live on dry land, and yes, I know how dumb that sounds. Much of what is available about the house is focused on cryptozoology, a pseudoscience and subculture that aims to prove the existence of entities from folklore as being real animals, rather than the ghost stories. This marks a shift from the paranormal to an attempt to explain things through some strange quirk of biology. I'm not certain that the people who were telling these stories in the late 18th and early 19th century would have seen it that way, though. Now, admittedly, I'm currently working under the influence of Paul Barber's book Vampires, Burial, and Death. The book is primarily about vampire folklore, which is radically different from the vampires of literature, film, and pop culture, and ties it to actual observations made about decomposition. His thesis being that almost everything in vampire folklore is actually pretty neatly tied to elements of natural decomposition. Along the way, he makes the observation that most of the people who believed and spread vampire folklore really didn't make a sharp distinction between the various supernatural phenomena that they were uh, claiming to describe. They would have viewed vampires, ghosts, witches, werewolves, and all manner of other things as being inextricably tied to one another. This led to the terms for these supernatural creatures sometimes being used interchangeably, much to the confusion of some modern-day researchers. I have to wonder if the same thing may be going on here. Is it the case that the ghosts, the mist-like thing, and the slimy alleged octopus creature were all simply different manifestations of weird without a clear categorization for each of them? But perhaps I'm allowing my own views on how people of the past perceived the weird and the occult to color my own views. A likely blow against my take on things is that most of the ghost stories, including most of those set in the 19th century, seem to have appeared in the second half of the 20th century. A few elements were probably in circulation earlier. Myers' family members and his descendants have suggested that the jilted Mr. Myers' tendency to roam his house by candlelight at night probably led to the formation of some of the ghost stories during his residence there. Additionally, many of the stories related to this house appear to have been lifted directly from Edward Bohr Lytton's 1859 story, The Haunted and the Haunters. It's worth mentioning that the house also sat unoccupied for stretches of time and therefore was far more decayed and decrepit than some of its neighbors. This always helps build a haunted reputation. The spiritualists of the late 19th century apparently tried to get access to the house, but they never had luck finding an owner that would let them in. That said, many of the story elements became best known from 20th century writings, specifically the 1907 publication Haunted Houses by Charles G. Harper and the 1975 book Haunted London by Peter Underwood. So this is probably more a case of sensationalist literature throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks, rather than the result of organic folklore development, as much as I may wish it was otherwise. There is certainly a shortage of verifiable facts among the more exciting claims, and some, such as the origins of stories developing from Mr. Meyer's nocturnal habits, or floors of the building being closed off due to World War II-era damage, are really rather mundane. Yeah, more's the pity. Fun fact! In researching the story, I came across a few examples of people claiming that Miss Havisham from the Charles Dickens novel Great Expectations was inspired by Mr. Meyer's over-the-top reaction to being jilted. So there you go. Whatever you make of the story of 50 Berkeley Square, I hope that it brings you the ghoulish pleasure that it brought my younger self. Thank you for joining me. If you have heard a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com.
That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail.com. Also, please visit the Ghostthropology blog for transcripts, show notes, and more information at kmmamedia.com. That's kmmamedia.com. Until next time, have a wonderfully spooky night. Spooky!